0: This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. Hey guys, it's Misha. I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. What, Misha's back in nature? No freaking way. She was scared of bears, breathless on hikes, and stressed out by building a tent in the dark. Like I saw a rock look like a bear, got freaked out. I don't wanna do this alone. Sure, all of that is true. I mean, I went to eight national parks back to back, which was really hard for me because I didn't grow up camping, hiking, or hanging out with bears. But it wasn't all just sighs and cursing at rocks. There were awe-inspiring moments, too. Dude. Oh my God, I'm gonna cry? No. <laughs> what
1: a vibe. This campsite like is I've got an interesting story to tell you. We're gonna see something new we've never seen before. This is healing. get lost. And then you look up and you see that sky. A sky that is limitless.
2: Whenever I go into the national park, I always come out better than when I went in.
1: If
0: you don't remember, or if you haven't listened to season one of this podcast, let me give you a little context. I grew up in Pakistan and moved with my family to Los Angeles in 2003. We spent most of our time in the city and didn't really know about parks outside of the ones in our neighborhood, like the little ones you have barbecues at. When I was in my early 20s, I watched a documentary about the American national
1: parks. The best idea we ever had.
0: And that was the moment I decided, like a true nerd, I'm gonna be a nature person. In 2021, I set out on a giant road trip to explore eight of the most iconic American national parks. The more time I spent in the parks, the more the trip started to transform. It went from me trying to be a nature person to something else, something more profound. I spent a lot of time with people of color, black and indigenous people. I met with Shelton Johnson, a black ranger at Yosemite, and learned the history of the Buffalo soldiers serving as wilderness rangers in the park. I talked to Jerry Bransford, the descendant of the enslaved explorers who mapped Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and I toured the sweetgrass fields of Acadia National Park with Suzanne Greenlaw, a member of the Wabanaki tribes. The stories and histories they told me had always been a part of the parks, but where were their voices in the documentaries and the books and the exhibits at the parks? I had to ask, if the parks are public, aren't they supposed to be for everyone? Because the thing is, if we don't get to hear our stories, our histories in these spaces, it's kind of hard to feel welcome. My adventure changed the way I saw not just the national parks, but our country. Spending time in nature with so many people of color, Black and Indigenous community members, made me question the story that we tell about our country, about our relationship to the land.
1: If I could ask anything of you, in your journeys, if you have a moment, to take somebody aside and just be it one person. One person can make a difference. And tell them how this all started. Tell the story. And then ask them to tell somebody else.
0: I came back to Los Angeles after two months of travel. And took a long nap. And then I had to get back to real life. But I craved the closeness to nature that I'd had access to on my road trip. Except I can't just drop work and spend a bunch of money and time to go to a national park every time I want a little dose of nature. So I started to chase it around my own city. I picnicked in the San Gabriel Mountains, 45 minutes from my house. I hiked Red Rocks in Topanga, only 30 minutes from my house. I kayaked in the marina, just 10 minutes away. I started to go on these city hikes in my neighborhood. I'd walk down my street pass lawn after lawn and watch the sunlight bounce off of orange trees and rose bushes. I'd drive over to the ocean and walk along the coarse sand. I'd take off my shoes so that I could feel the grains on my feet. I'd stare up at the sky for hours and just listen to the birds. I used to think that I had to go someplace far to experience nature, but that's actually the first obstacle, isn't it? If nature is far away, and it costs money and takes a lot of time, then it's hard to experience it. But what if, what if it isn't far away? What if all we need to do is just notice what's already around us? For me, after coming back from my road trip, I felt like I just started to see LA. I mean, it's a city, sure, but a city surrounded by mountains and the ocean. So that's what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to explore the nature in our backyards, not just in my city, Los Angeles, but also in the backyards of some of the biggest, most bustling cities in America, the last places you'd expect to find nature. I want to challenge the idea that we need to go somewhere to experience nature. And this time, I have another question. If nature is all around us, then what is standing in our way. How do people like me, people of color, black and indigenous people, find nature near us? How do we build it, fight for it, protect it, and engage with it? Hello, nature. I can't believe this is like right outside the city. Hello, nature. I'm gonna have frostbite. Nature. The marathon brought me to Boston. Hello, Nature. will yes. see all that swimming over there. Look at Whoa, it. Whoa, this is so cool, and I could feel the power of the water. Hello, Nature. Do you like the snow? Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Nature.
2: There's something so unique about crossing a finish line, knowing that you are proudly doing it as your whole self.
0: I become the main character in the movie that I love. Welcome back to Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef, and this is season two. This episode, we're hiking in Los Angeles. We're exploring what it's like to fight for access to nature. you to take a photo of us. This episode, we're starting right here at home, my home, but also the home of the Tongva, Tata Viam, Serrano, Kiz, and Chumash peoples. Hey, guys, could we possibly interview you really quickly for a podcast? I'm standing on the steps of the Bolton Hills scenic overlook, stopping people along the way to ask him questions about the trail. It's kind of an excuse to take breaks. Wow. I'm already so tired. And <laughs> oh I am goodness. not alone. Do you do the Baldwin Hill Scenic Overlook a lot? I haven't in a while. This is my first day back after about a
1: year, so.
0: How's it feeling? It's feeling.
1: <laughs> it's feeling. Tired, very tired. My dad's all the way up there, and my mom's right here. <laughs> We're the
0: steps, it gets a really good booty blast, you know, burn in. And then there are people like... This for me is just kind
1: of like a cool down,
0: so not necessarily a workup. Don't worry, I threw him down the stairs. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm with Stephanie, our senior producer this season. How often do you come here? Um, Probably like once every two weeks. I told her all about how I found out about these steps. I, I first discovered everything. them during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, Tracy, invited me to hike here. I went once and became obsessed. The steps are pretty central, like kind of right in the middle of the city. But this overlook still feels wild, like an oasis. It's just rained a ton. So little wildflowers are coming in, delicately dancing with the wind. And the grass is so green, it looks like a filter. And it is crowded. It's a Sunday. Perfect L.A. weather high 60s, a soft breeze. It's the kind of winter day that reminds you why people move to this city. Let's do it. Almost there. There are 282 steps, and they lead to this beautiful spot that overlooks the entire city. Oh. Look, we can see the Hollywood sign here. Let me show you. And there are steps like this all over LA. Little urban hikes hidden in almost every neighborhood. Okay, we're almost at the top. Charles Fleming literally wrote a book on all of these stairs.
1: I discovered this sort of network of urban trails that could be treated like the Pacific Crest Trail, for example, as a sort of opportunity to through hike all across Los Angeles if one wanted to.
0: I know what you're thinking. L.A. is in a walkable city. I know. I know. As much as we're known for the beach and beautiful hiking trails, we're also known for our traffic. But most of these stairs predate the traffic.
1: In Los Angeles, particularly in older areas like Silver Lake, hilly areas that were developed mostly before the Depression, there are these public staircases that were designed to get people who lived in the hilly areas down the hill in an efficient way that didn't require a car so they could get to the trolley or the school or the church.
0: Before Charles started hiking the stairs of L.A., he wasn't much of a hiker, kind of like me. He also hated LA, not like me. He'd lived here most of his life, but the car culture really grated on him.
1: don't have to get along with other people because I'm in my house, then I'm in my car, then I'm in my office, then I'm in my car, then I'm in my house, and I don't have to get along with you. I don't care about you. I don't even know you. But then he gets injured, and the only
0: thing that helps with his pain is walking. So he starts urban hiking, finding staircases all around the city.
1: And everything changed. I just kind of fell in love with Los Angeles for the first time since 1965. I discovered it as a walker. I was moving slowly and looking at what was around me and smelling what was around me and feeling what was around me. How could I have not known that this was here? There's a lake, there's a park, there's a grove of redwood trees. There's a community, there are these restaurants, there are all these people.
0: And this is what makes city hiking so exciting. It's where nature, history, and culture all come together. Turn left onto Silver Lake Boulevard.
1: It starts right in the heart of Silver Lake at a cafe that is known as Cafe Tropical. It's an old, it was established by Cubans who had left Cuba during the the great post-Fidel diaspora. And had come here to Los Angeles and they opened up a place where you could get good strong coffee and Cuban sandwiches and other Cuban delights and there's a lot of interesting weird architecture so as you walk along you see you know here's a Tudor apartment building next door to a moorish apartment building with strange spiky spires reaching into the sky and there's a set of stairs just up ahead what does
0: it say oh music box steps oh my goodness we're here. Which
1: is probably a climb of about 130 or 140 steps.
0: Can we go to the top? Yeah,
1: let's do it.
0: Okay, so there's this really cool little black sign that's impossible to read and it says this plaque marks the site of the making of the 1932 Academy Award for short subject comedy.
1: This was the location where Laurel and Hardy filmed a short film called The Music Box in which they play two Magoos, whose job is to deliver a piano to a house.
0: These staircases around the city, they all have stories like this. And it got me wondering what the story is behind the Baldwin Hills steps. So I started looking into it. Turns out it's quite a saga. It's a story about how a historically black neighborhood fought for decades to create and keep green space in their own
2: community. We need safe places to go for our kids. We need to get outside and address some of this outdoor deficit disorder.
0: After the break, we meet David McNeil. He's on a mission to bring nature into his own backyard. Sometimes, when you live in a car-obsessed city like LA, it's hard to imagine taking a hike right in your backyard. Believe me, I get it. But what I learned while recording this season of Hello Nature is it is possible. Locals like David and Charles are leading the charge to bring nature to the people of Los Angeles and making it more accessible for all. There are urban hikes all around us, and with the right tools, we can experience nature down the street and up the stairs. That's where Subaru comes in. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance, plus comfy water-repellent interiors are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com wilderness. Hi, David. Um, it's Stephanie and Misha. We're here, but I think the gate is actually locked. The main oh, the driving gate. Got it. Got it. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye. It is unbelievable how clear it is. The fact that we can see the mountain tops and like the snow capped ones. Hello. How are, you here? how are you? Hey. How's it going? How
2: this is so cute. Oh my. It's not open.
0: (laughs) Thank you for letting us in. I appreciate it. I'm Misha. Misha, David. So nice
2: to meet you, David.
0: David McNeil is the man behind the Baldwin Hills Scenic Overlook. Uh,
2: Yeah, you're the hiker extraordinaire.
0: Oh my goodness, (laughs) not even close. David has been leading the charge to build parks in South L.A.
2: Here's our little raised beds. Oh, wow.
0: The Conservancy is nestled in the hills of L.A. Imagine yellow and purple wildflowers, rolling green hills, robins chirping. It's gorgeous. And just a little bit of a ways from the overlook. And yet it feels like a world away from a major city. The river?
2: I call La Cienega river.
0: Well, remember, we are still in L.A. It's
2: the urban river. It's a constant hum of vehicles.
0: Growing up in L.A., I vaguely knew that Baldwin Hills was a historically black neighborhood in South Los Angeles. It's one of the few majority Black neighborhoods that are still left in the city. So it's a big deal that the Baldwin Hills Steps are here, and they are super popular. They're one of the most popular urban hiking trails in the city of Los Angeles. I asked David, what's the story behind the stairs?
2: Yeah, so I think it was like 2007. There's this one building at the top of the hill that was existing called the Clubhouse. Graffiti-ridden building, and they demoed it, and they said, well, we got to figure out what to do with this. And somebody said, well, why don't we leave it on site? Why don't we build some stairs with this broken cement? So they said, I said, everybody said, wow, that's a great idea. It was reused to the umpteenth degree. So that's how the stairs got started.
0: But that's only part of the
2: story. Now, I could go back further before that.
0: I want you to picture a gorgeous hilly town overlooking the skyline of LA. Right underneath these green hills of the neighborhood, there's an oil field. It's called the Inglewood Oil Field. The field actually used to extend all the way to where the scenic overlook and the steps are today. It's one of the largest urban oil fields in the whole country. And they started drilling in this area in the 1920s. In 1951, the city built a dam in this neighborhood. This dam bordered the oil field and took up acres of land. The goal of the dam was to bring water to the west side of Los Angeles. When the dam was built, there was promise of water. And where there is water, there are people. Developers got super excited. They started building more homes and apartments and commercial buildings. And young people, professionals, flocked to Baldwin Hills. Now, this whole move is coming on the heels of an important 1948 Supreme Court case. The case is called Shelley v. Kramer. And in it, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down racially restrictive housing covenants, which means that people can't keep someone from buying property just because they're Black. And the Supreme Court ruling starts to play out in a lot of places. And one of those places is Baldwin Hills. Black families begin moving to the neighborhood and Baldwin Hills turns into one of the first integrated neighborhoods in the city of Los Angeles. A decade passes, and then one fine day.
2: A triangle-shaped wedge tears out of the asphalt and concrete-lined wall of the earth-filled dam of the Baldwin Hills Reservoir. The water fills the 50-foot-deep catch basin below the lip of the dam, and millions of gallons of water race down the canyon toward the homes below, an incredible disaster. It's a huge
0: tragedy. People die, homes are destroyed. In the wake of this, the people of Baldwin Hills have to rebuild their neighborhood. The community re-emerges from tragedy and it gains even more of a reputation as a hub for wealthy black families in Los Angeles. By the late 60s, Baldwin Hills is not just integrated, it's officially a black neighborhood, an affluent black neighborhood. Celebrities like Tina Turner, and Ray Charles start moving here. People start calling it the Black Beverly Hills. And this is when a guy named Kenneth Hahn enters the picture.
2: And, and this is really also a story of being a good neighbor. And if you're not a good neighbor, we're going to make you one.
0: He's the L.A. County supervisor. What even is an L.A. County supervisor? Supervisor. Okay, so an L.A. County supervisor is basically in charge of making laws for the county. So in this case, the county of Los Angeles, which is even bigger than the city of Los Angeles. That's kind of how counties work. Anyway, one day in 1968, Kenneth, let's call him Kenny, comes across the old dam site. It's a giant wasteland.
2: And he was driving by and saying, one day this should be a park. When the oil's all gone, it'll be a park
0: you got to know something about Kenny. He's obsessed with parks. It's actually a huge part of his political platform. It's basically his personality. And he has an idea that's very ahead of its time.
1: It is much wiser and more economical to spend money constructively in providing our youth with good parks and playgrounds than it is to be constantly building more jails, juvenile halls, and detention camps.
0: Kenny is actually a big ally for communities of color, and he sees parks as a way to keep youth, especially kids of color, out of jails. So he starts raising money for the park in 1968.
2: They had money to buy the first 200 and something acres.
0: Around this time is when David's family moves to Baldwin Hills.
2: We used to hang out at the old dam site. We used to play in the oil fields with our motocross bikes and walk our dogs and, you know, have them fetch, you know, chase after rabbits. So we had a little bit of wild land. But again, it's always juxtaposed with an urban landscape. You had the pump jacks going and the rabbits running by and the dog running and then your kids doing wheelies and doing finding places to, you know, to jump. And, um, you know, those were the good old days.
0: While David is playing in the oil field, Kenny is busy raising money. He's acquiring land, And using every political connection at his disposal. And all this hard work pays off. The park finally opens in 1983. It's 138 acres. That's like 138 football fields. And it's called the Kenneth Hahn State Recreation Area.
2: And they built this park. And then they said, let's do a master plan for this park. The Baldwin Hill State Recreation Master Plan.
0: The plan's ambitious. The county of Los Angeles wants to someday turn the entire oil field into a giant park. And I mean literally giant. Around 1,300 acres. For context, Central Park is only 843.
2: That's when the state kind of went bankrupt. Everybody was bankrupt.
0: Governments change. Reagan is in charge. There's a massive recession. And people are not so hot on parks anymore. I mean parks cost money.
2: Nobody could get any money.
0: And there's no financial or clear return on investment for those diehard capitalists.
2: And everybody's like, oh, this park thing is a liability. And parks are expensive. So they're like, screw the parks.
0: We're over it.
2: So that put everything on hold. And that's kind of where it stayed. And
0: Kenneth Hahn Park starts to deteriorate.
2: No security, no lights, no nothing.
0: It gets literally and figuratively dark. The park turns into a place for kids to do and sell drugs. And that's kind of how it is from the 80s all the way to the early 2000s.
1: It's the last day of the year, the final day of the century, the eve of a whole new millennium.
0: The new millennium starts. David becomes a dad. And another urban parks movement starts gaining momentum in cities. People want more recreation spaces in their crowded towns, especially black and brown people.
2: We need safe places to go for our kids. We need to get outside and address some of this outdoor deficit disorder. You know, we need to connect with nature.
0: They rally behind green spaces in their own backyards. David's a brand new dad, and he's thinking about his kid. What kind of world do I want for my son? And why don't I build that world?
2: I saw an ad in a paper, a local paper, saying, plan the largest park since Golden Gate Park.
0: David applies, interviews. But this story is not a fairy tale. The city ends up giving the job to someone else. But David, he doesn't need the job to do what he wants.
2: I was organizing, essentially, before Obama was organizing. (laughs) I, I was organizing in the neighborhood, knocking on doors in my backyard. So all the homeowners groups, the youth leagues, the churches, the schools, everybody was going to these meetings about, what do you want to see happen in this park? And then about four months later, they called me and said, Can you come back?
0: This is the city calling. They've seen the work he's doing in the community, and they need him.
2: And I said, okay.
0: David gets to work right away because there's a lot of momentum. People are hyped. They're even more excited than they were when the idea first came up under Kenny Hahn decades ago. It started with deregulating the power grid, and that was the start of months of rolling blackouts across the state that put lives at risk and hurt the economy. I told you there were twists and turns.
2: The rolling blackouts came and they waived permits for emergency power plants.
0: Like the city of Los Angeles had a shortage of power. So they said to companies that can build a power plant and quickly supply energy to people's houses, you don't have to wait years to do that. You can just bypass all the community approval because this is an emergency. And guess who applies for a permit for the power plant? the oil
2: operator. And the story became, we want a power plant and we want a park. And all the neighborhoods came out against this power plant in the neighborhood. They said, we're having a park. We've got a plan for a park. How can you put a power plant in there? You need to go.
0: People freak. They're like, nope. Why do you need to put this emergency power plant in our neighborhood? Like a Black neighborhood instead of somewhere else in L.A.? Environmental racism is starting to gain awareness at this point. And the people of Baldwin Hills are, like, not on our watch, not in our neighborhood. And we are not waiting any longer for this park. No power, no problem. We'd rather be outside anyway. To settle this issue, the State Energy Commission has a public hearing. Almost 1,000 people show up at the hearing.
2: They filled the room. They had people outside broadcasting and just to hear what they're going to say. And they, they nixed it.
0: Holy shit. The community wins the fight. There will be no power plant in Baldwin Hills.
2: And that was kind of the power of a park and the power of connection because all the outreach we had done had kind of created this network. All our email lists, all our door knocking, the block clubs were all of a sudden connected, the homeowners associates were connected, the churches were connected. Everybody was connected at the perfect time to beat the power plant. That was the goal when I got hired, is like, you can start implementing this plan that you've been talking about. And I'm the kind of guy, like, I don't like just talking about things. I like doing things. So it's kind of a moving train. And how do you do this? It's like eating an elephant one bite at a time. Buying the oil field is not like, oh, yeah, we bought the oil field. Oh, yeah, we built the park. Oh, yeah, it's done.
0: Okay, so he takes it one project at a time. And one of his first projects is... Drum roll.
2: The Bowling Hill Scenic Overlook.
0: It cost $30 million to buy the land for the Overlook,
2: which was the largest urban purchase for an urban park for state parks at that time. And people were freaking out in Sacramento. They're like, 30 million, you got what? 60 acres? What are you talking about? We can get 3,000 acres in, in the Delta for $30 million. What kind of conservation is that? The most important thing is we're putting parks where people are. Without a million people that can get to this park in like a five mile radius, why would you not do that? My goal was to have people say, I can walk to something. I can get to something that's in my own backyard. I don't have to travel to the Santa Monica Mountains or to Palos Verdes Peninsula or Spokane to see natural open space. Everybody should be able to get to a park without having a car. The goal is to have access for all. And if they can't get to it, it needs to be close by. And that's, that's just equity.
0: Wow, we're here. We made it to the top. See the mountains in Hollywood towards your like right back corner. You can see all the mountains and the clouds. You know, at the start of this year, I went back to my original home, my home country, Pakistan. And I hadn't been back in 14 years, so it was a really big trip. And there's a lot that I didn't remember and a lot that has changed. There are cute coffee shops, fun new museums, and a lot of really cool nature-filled walkable cities in Pakistan. But my city is not one of them anymore. Okay, so I spent my childhood in Karachi, which is one of the big metropolitan cities in Pakistan. As a kid, I remember going to the beach, playing in the park outside our apartment building, walking freely in the streets. There were all these little pockets of nature we used to play in. But when I came back, I couldn't find them. In the last 20 years, the city's kind of been in bad shape. Traffic is horrible. City infrastructure is falling apart. People throw trash everywhere. There are very few parks and public places for people to walk around, especially women. You get stared at, people holler. It's just not fun. So for women, Karachi has become entirely a car city. LA, but on steroids. You take a car two blocks down the street. It smells like gasoline. The sounds of motorcycle engines drown out the seagulls from the Arabian Sea and my eyes constantly strain over the dust. It is impossible to experience Karachi on foot, to really get to know the city and the nature surrounding it. The whole time I was there, I felt like I was home, and yet still so far away from home. It made me realize that if you can't experience the land, it's hard to feel at home there. If you can't hear the birds, feel the wind, and smell the fishy smell of the sea, it's hard to feel anchored, rooted. I think that's why the people of Baldwin Hills are fighting so hard to restore the nature in their own city. To be able to explore and experience it. So that they can connect with their home. So that they can feel tethered. Because if we're not of a place, who are we? What are we? It's our right to access nature, to feel at home in our homes. Of course, it's not an easy fight to fight. I mean, it took Baldwin Hills decades to just get the scenic overlook and the steps. The community had to work together and fight for it. And they are still pushing. The Conservancy now has 750 acres in public hands, but they're only halfway to their goal of 1,300 acres. The oil field is getting smaller, but it's still there. You can literally see it from the overlook. But if there's anything you take away from Baldwin Hills and the people who fought for the parks here, it's that we have to fight for nature in our own homes. Because it isn't just a fight for a park, it's a fight for belonging. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Exploring nature in cities across the US has been an unforgettable adventure. From hiking the secret stairs in LA to camping on the outskirts of Chicago, none of it would have been possible without my 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate enabler for your outdoor adventure standard, symmetrical all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance, plus a comfy and water-repellent interior, are among just a few of the features that make the Outback Wilderness the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com Wilderness. Next episode of Hello Nature, we go to Chicago. There was nobody who looked like me. I was by far the youngest person, by far the person with the least amount of experience, by far the person with the most color in the group. And I just felt like, whoa, <laughs> where am I? I'm in a whole different world. See you in Chicago. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Stephanie Cohn is the senior producer. This episode was written by me and Stephanie Cohn. It was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Jules Bradley and Valeria Aller Cone provided additional production help throughout the season. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Jenny Barber, Joe Crosby, and Hannah Boyd. The voice of the documentary from season one was Gordon Henderson. Aaron Weber voiced Kenneth Hahn in this episode. Esteban Gast voiced Nature in the trailer. Also, the trailer was written by me, Misha Youssef, with help from Stephanie Cohn. And it was sound designed by me, with help from Valentino Rivera. If you're looking for a podcast that can change your life and inspire you to chase down your biggest, boldest dreams, check out REI Co-op's Wild Ideas Worth Living. Hosted by journalist, author, adventurer, and all-around curious person, Shelby Stanger, this podcast features stories from people who took the path less traveled and brought their wildest ideas to life. Some of the most popular episodes include The Wisdom of Expeditions with Famous Rock Climber and Mountaineer Conrad Anker, ice swimming with Melissa Kegler, and life on a highline with professional highliner Faith Dickey. Whether they're walking across America, breaking the fastest known times, summiting mountains, or breaking down barriers, guests on Wild Ideas Worth Living are all chasing something wild, something they're passionate about. Who knows? Tuning in may just inspire you to do the same. You can find Wild Ideas Worth Living wherever you listen to podcasts. Now go on and get out there.